I'm Evans Maradzis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest this time is composer, activist, impresario, and all-around amazing human being, Laura Kaminsky. We'll be talking about how she developed her career as a composer and how much she likes bicycle rides. Laura, are you a born and bred New Yorker? First generation, born and bred. So what brought your folks to the United States and to New York in particular? Well, my dad was born in New York. He was a first generation American. His parents came from Russia in the time when it wasn't a good idea for them to stay there. Um, He grew up in the Bronx as a really poor kid during the Depression. My mom is from London. She grew up in London during the Blitz, um, was evacuated up to Wales, and says that she never got good in certain subjects because in one year she went to 13 different schools and they never were on the same lesson in the same week. So that's her excuse, but I think maybe she's just not good at algebra. Don't know. My parents met in Joan les pins in the south of France. Um, My mom and her sister were on holiday. My dad and his best friend were on a three-day long weekend from their posting in Munich, Germany. And my dad's friend tried to pick my mom up. (laughs) 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 The rest is history. Actually, it took a long time. When finally, my sisters and I, we used to do family slideshows as entertainment when we weren't producing Broadway musicals or other kinds of entertainment for my parents, their entertainment for us was let's look at the family slides. And of course, it was all about their wonderful romance in Europe when when they were young. And it wasn't until I was much older and I went, oh my God, they were running around Europe having sex like wild people before they got married. And I was like 25 years old before I realized that. <laughs> you know, it is one of those things. Of, I mean, this you can't imagine your parents' love life, you know, and, until you are an adult. Because as a little kid, you think it's all sort of kind of Disney. Right, exactly. And then when you realize they are real people, it's a, it's one of those coming-of-age yep. rude awakenings. And it was, it was totally cool with me. It's like, oh, they're fully rounded people. So my mom ended up coming to the state. She was a fashion designer. She went to St. Martin's School of Art in London, wanted to be an architect. They said women can't do that. So they told her she could become a clothing designer. Came to the States and spent six months going around the country on a Greyhound bus visiting the uh, families of the American Jewish soldiers who had spent Friday night dinners at her parents' house when The war was on, and it was safe enough to be in London. And then she showed up in New York and called up my dad, and they started dating again, and here I am. (laughs) So um, you grew up in the Bronx as well? No, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a block away from the Museum of Natural History in an apartment my parents had rented for 56 years that my mom still lives in now. So when you were a kid growing up on the Upper West Side, was it more like West Side Story than it is today? It was kind of a gritty neighborhood in those days, wasn't it? It was It was interesting. It was a gritty neighborhood in part. It was kind of solid working class and middle class in the middle. And then Riverside Drive and Central Park West had more fancy, fancy folks. Fancy right. folks. Right. But it was very diverse ethnically, religiously, immigrant populations, multi-generations. And it was filled with working people. So there were musicians and dancers and writers and teachers and social workers all kind of making a community together. And it was kind of the way a city should be. But, yes, it was very gritty. And this is in the years before, of course, Lincoln Center is built. Lincoln Center starts construction in the very early 60s. Opera House opens in 66, if I remember right. Lincoln Philharmonic Hall opens a little bit earlier than that uh, because that's what it was called in those days. New York State Theater around the same time. Were you still living in New York as as a kid and as a young adult as that transformation began to happen, the sort of the gentrification and the sort of sanitization, as it were, if that's a word, of the Upper West Side? Yeah, I mean, the Upper West Side in my childhood really did change. And I think Lincoln Center was a significant piece of that change. Um, And then around Lincoln Center, there was the beginning of these apartment complexes. And 
it did change the fabric of the neighborhood. Um, I remember as a kid when I started running, you know, to to be in shape, it was kind of dangerous still, and you couldn't really run in the park. So I used to run up and down Broadway from where we lived on 79th Street down to Carnegie Hall and back, but I'd stop and circle around the fountain in Lincoln Center, and I felt like this is perfect, a young musician who gets exercise. And uses (laughs) Carnegie Hall as a lodestone. (laughs) So... Was there a musical milieu in your childhood that uh, sort of laid the foundations for what you were going to do as a young adult and turning towards composing? What was what was the music in the air when you were a kid? Huh. Well, one thing I will say, and I think this is a real issue in our society, is we had music in public school. So we had a chorus. We all sang. The actual principal of my elementary school was a musician. And when we had our weekly assemblies, he played and we all participated. And it was pretty vibrant and available to everybody. And we had guest artists coming in all the time. I remember, and this was transformative for me, I think it was a third grade through a grant there were artists in residence in the public schools, oh and gosh. one of the artists, and it was life-changing for me, was Baba Olatunji, the drummer. Right. Very, and very famous African drummer. Incredible drummer. And he came with his family into the classrooms, and they cooked meals for us and taught us drumming patterns and songs. And there was a citywide contest to design the poster for their concert, I think, at Carnegie Hall. And one of my post, my poster was was one of the ones that was chosen. So I get to go to the concert and shake his hand. And many years later, I ended up living in Ghana in West Africa. And it was just, it felt like it was coming home. Wow. What is something that you took away, and maybe looking at it in retrospect, from the, the time with Olatunji, does it? Does it resonate in the way you think about rhythm as a composer to this day? Rhythm really drives a lot of how I feel and think about music, but I don't do anything academically. I mean, one of the things that was fantastic was when I was in Ghana for that year, we were at the National Academy of Music in Winneba, which is a small coastal city outside of Accra, and half the education, sort of like going to a yeshiva, half the education was... Western training, and the other half was traditional African music. And I was studying drumming and balafon with two masters. And you didn't notate anything, and you didn't read anything. It was imitative and rote. And when I didn't play it right, my teacher would say, your drum is not talking to me. Oh, how be- what a and, beautiful language. And he would just come and stand and bang the rhythms on my shoulders until I internalized them physically. I know some opera singers who have to learn that way. <laughs> they shall remain nameless. <laughs> but but it, it was never about counting, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't write it down. It was about feeling these cycles of repeating patterns and how they all interlock, which is what's so great. I mean, one drummer in a drumming ensemble will only play one rhythm his entire life. There's a guy who plays and that's all he will do. But the other guy is going and when you put the two together, it gets really complicated, but you nobody counts. Wow. And so I don't count, which is I think part of how I challenge my musicians because I feel these patterns and the flow of that energy and most Western-trained musicians just count. And so I make it hard for them because I say, just feel it. Feel it. It's going to be right. It will lock in. Don't worry about the precision after you've sort of tackled it from a reading perspective. Once you internalize it, it's just going to flow. So in other words, do you do you have a healthy disrespect for bar lines in some ways? In other words, those <laughs> those little those little prisons in which notes must live? I actually have given talks about the tyranny of the bar line. I don't like bar lines because I think they squareify music in a way that feels not human and not emotional to me. And they're necessary organizing principles. I mean, and there's different ways to fight with the bar line. I mean, Brahms always pushed against the bar line. I spent a lot of my earlier years as a composer doing things, and I still do this, and people can see it in my scores. There's a lot of quintuplets, five notes against 
four beats or three against two. And then I mix them all up, seven against four, against five, because what I'm really feeling is this human pulse. And I'm not really thinking about it as, oh, we've got to fit five against four against three. So maybe a me- not a metaphor, but a way of describing is that for you, rhythm is the energy in the music. Yeah. It's the, it's the, and it's, I know it's a cliche to say this, but it's the engine. It's, you know, that everything, everything is propelled on the back of the rhythms that you create. In the music that needs that, mm. in the music that needs pure soul, it's melodic line. And I never think about any of this. I just feel what I'm doing. Like, I'm, I'm not the most deeply trained composer in the universe. Um, and so, I feel like a lot of the time I'm just groping around in the dark till something feels true. And for me, almost all of my composing starts from a visual place. Ah. I see it. I mean, I'm not sure I'm synesthetic in the classical explanation of that, but until I see a kind of energy and color and form, which is very abstract, kind of like an abstract expressionist painting, um, I don't really hear it. It's not about choosing notes or finding a bunch of chords and saying, oh, yeah, this is the progression. I don't work that way at all. It's kind of a gestalt, like this holistic energy flow that then translates into sound. So is this composer being born in PS 20-whatever? 87. PS 87? (laughs) Did you have uh, pre-adolescent aspirations to to write music down or just to make music, period, of your own? I wanted to make music as a little kid, but I actually thought I was going to be a visual artist. I mean, my, my mom, as a fashion designer, was a visual person. And my poor little sister, Nina, always used to say, oh, we have to go to the museum again. My knees. I have museum knees. But we went to museum. I was just talking with my mom the other day, re- having some re- reminiscences. And I said, you used to take us like, I don't know, every month. She said, every week. <laughs> I mean, we we memorized most of the Impressionist galleries in the Met by the time we were, you know, old enough to write our names. So I was much more trained visually, um, but I wanted to do music, and arts were central to our childhood. Um, lucky you. I, fort- I, unbelievably lucky, and that was sort of the primary thing that I focused my attention on. So I wanted to play. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a good performer, um, and I have terrible stage fright. So at a certain point, my parents did let me take piano lessons. At that point, I had already started making up music and was forcing my poor sisters to learn things that I had made up. You were a little impresario as a kid. Yeah, they hated it. (laughs) (laughs) My my curse was a puppet theater, which I made my siblings work Uh, on. My first opera that I actually remember was when my Aunt Blanche came back from Mexico with a bunch of marionettes, and I wrote a marionette opera and taught it to the kids over the summer. My sisters and the kids in the—we were all at the beach that summer— and made us perform it, and they, nobody liked me very much because I was like demanding and exacting. You so were you, had, Miss, you were a little Miss Bossy Boots. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess you. Were, you sounds like we shared that. Oh yeah, my dad <laughs> built me a marionette theater, and wow. I tortured the neighborhood kids by making them come to my show. There you go. In the garage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Impresarios in the making, both of us. Oh yeah. But um, at a certain point, I guess something happens that makes you think maybe I could make a living at this. Oh, that never happened. Really? It just grew. I, okay, so going back to being young, so I started piano lessons. I was probably about 10, learned how to read music, and rapidly discovered that I could practice a lot of scales and arpeggios and keep repeating the same transition that was awkward in my hands, and it never sounded with my hands the way it sounded in my head. I was not a performer. I just, and it was boring to me. But when I stopped playing the beautiful Debussy passage, not as well as I heard it in my head, and started improvising on it. It's like, wow, this is really interesting. And then all of a sudden, hours would go by, and I started writing a piece, and I had to figure out how to write it down. So I started writing down my music when I was about 12. And that led, I think, to the transformative moment when art sort of receded into the background, and music took foreground because I was going to audition 
to go to music and art high school, which is a public school for the arts, with an art portfolio. Hmm. And at the last minute, I asked if I could change to a music portfolio because I had just finished notating my first solo piano piece, and I had public school again, junior high. They had handed out clarinets and said, if you can get a sound, you're in the band. And I kind of got a sound, and I was like the worst clarinetist in the band who always sounded. But I wrote a piece for the clarinet, and I hadn't even learned all the fingerings yet, so it only had the notes that I knew. But I wrote it, and I decided to audition for music and art, and I played, I think, a Mozart sonata, and I know I didn't play Bach because I never played Bach well. It was too many controlled fingers. Some other repertoire piece, and then my own piano piece and my clarinet piece badly, and I was accepted as a music student at Music and Art. And so that was kind of a transformative time for me, and I loved that experience. Do you still have those two pieces in your archive someplace? I think I might, in a little manuscript book with very big lines and big funny looking notes but yeah and were you and were you uh, fighting against bar lines even then For, i don't know that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> you begin as you mean to continue as mm. it were so this takes a this takes a turn when you're entering basically high school and um, the composing as it were bug seems to have bitten um, and did you take a lot of formal training in high school or in actually, this is you probably even know this person. My ninth and tenth grade music theory teacher, which are the only two real formal years of theory that I've had, was Edna Landau, oh who my ran goodness. IMG artists. Edna, my dear Edna. friend, yes, yeah, of course. She's an amazing, beautiful person. We've yeah. reconnected as as a older adults, and I say, you taught me all the theory I know. Um, so. I lost your question. No, did you? So you had some formal training oh. in theory and composition already in high school. N well, composition, there wasn't a composition program at Music and Art. <sighs> um, there was one class that you could take, I think, as a senior that I took in composition. But I was just writing music at that point, And my friends and I would play my pieces. You know, I'd write for my different combinations of friends and we'd perform and that's what we did after school it was not as exciting as some of my hip friends who would go out partying and doing drugs and you know knew everything that was going on in the world that was not us we would like bake cookies and play chamber music but it was it worked out in the end you said something towards the beginning when you were talking about your mom that um you know women didn't do that and when she wanted to be an architect Women didn't do that even in your childhood and young adulthood in being composers. I yeah. mean, I can count on the fingers of one hand probably the names of female composers I can remember from, let's say, 1900 to 1950. I mean, I'm going to get it wrong, but Lily Boulanger, Ruth Crawford Seeger, um, Mrs. H.H.A. Beach, which is just 19th, a, century, 19th yeah. century. And the list runs out pretty quickly in terms of those people, Florence Price from the 1930s, but the list is short. Rebecca Clark, I believe. Yeah, but it, the um. list is really short. And so did you encounter any, I hate to use the word prejudice, but did you encounter any incredulity? You're a girl and you're writing music? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, number one is... Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know other people like me. Um, I, in the quest for college, I my first primary thing I wanted, and I loved my family, but I wanted to go to college where it wasn't expected that I would go home every weekend. So I discovered through a friend of mine that Oberlin existed here in Ohio, and it had a conservatory, and it had a good college, and it was very liberal, first school to admit blacks, first school to have women, first school to have integrated dorms, co-ed dorms. I said, this place sounds great, and it's 10 hours by car, and I don't have a car. I can actually, like, immerse myself. So I, I applied and was accepted to Oberlin, and I had to make a decision about college or conservatory or double degree. And I chose to be a college student with a psychology major. Um, but I was writing music the whole time I was there. Um, I was the only woman girl 
I think, who was composing at that time. And I didn't really think I should be a composition major because there was no model out there for anybody, for me to look and say, oh, I could end up like that person. I didn't know any composers. But it got pretty intense, the the composing thing. And um, the dean kind of of the conservatory sort of could see how serious I was. And even though I didn't take theory or I didn't take any of those courses, I've never taken an ear training class, nothing. Um, he granted me both a junior and a senior recital. So my senior year, I was doing an honors thesis in psychology and I was finishing two pieces for my senior recital. And every time I was doing the statistical analysis on my project, I was like, well, this is kind of intellectually interesting, but I'm not really having fun. And the night I finished my string quartet, the conservatory closed at 2 a.m., and I lived at the far other end of town. I'm riding my bike. I'm like, this is great. I love this. I'm so happy. And I came home, and I ripped up all my grad school applications in psychology. And I just knew I had to figure out how to just write music. I needed to just do it. I don't want to jump ahead too much to as one, but... It sounds as though, I mean, the story that you tell uh, with Kimberly Reed and Mark Campbell as one, in the largest sense of the word, is realizing who you really are. And I'm wondering if that night riding at top speed across the deserted streets of Oberlin, Ohio, that was the moment when you said, I'm a composer. Yeah. You know, you just said something. I think if you weren't an impresario who had a marionette theater as a young person, you probably would have been like Lucy, a great psychiatrist, because you just made me make a connection about my own life. Because the other aha moment I had in my life was also on a bicycle. It was when I finally acknowledged that I was gay. And I was biking from Broadway, from the Upper West Side down to NYU in the village. And I was like having the dialogue in my head that Hannah has throughout as one about who am I? How can I finally say who I am? And I remember I was right by Columbus Circle. The old Coliseum building was still there. Oh, God. And as I make the curve around the statue of Columbus, I said, just accept it, Laura. You're gay. And the light turned red, and everybody stopped except for me. <laughs> and I went right into the taxi cab in front of me. And I was like, he jumped out of his cab. And it was my fault, not his. Are you okay? It's like, I'm great. I'm so fine. And I had damaged the wheel of my bike, and I had to leave it and get on the subway to get to my meeting downtown. But I was like, bicycles and moments of finding who you are, I guess those are connected for me. Motion <laughs> and rhythm. Back to the what, back to go. what you do so much and so beautifully in your music. And too. it's so funny. I mean, I just never made this co connection before, but the opening scene of As One is about a bike ride bike ride? For me, it was ice skating. And I'm a terrible ice skater. I mean, I really can only go forward and barely stop. But mm -hmm. a couple of a couple of sort of epiphany moments in my life, one which was deciding to take a job that was a real leap for me. And I thought, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. I what was got the job? A, uh, to work at the Decca Record Company in uh -huh. London to run a major international record company. Wow. And we were on tour with the Boston Symphony. And I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and it was in the middle of the winter, and it happened that the ice skating rink next to the hotel was open. And I must have looked like an idiot. And <laughs> so I, the only ice skater, while it was still almost dark, and I skated around in a circle for about an hour, and it happened. I, wow. I, made, I made the decision. So motion. You know, putting yourself – this is a fascinating thing. Putting yourself in a space where it's somewhat mindless. I mean, obviously, if you're riding a bike or you're skating – you have to be mindful of the world around you, and there's you have to keep your balance. You, but it's it's a very fr it's a very freeing Absolutely. activity that has a certain amount of repetition and allows your mind to roam free. Yeah, I mean there is of course this great tradition of composers walking in the mountains. You know those that, those great von Williams, Mahler, Va that, not Wagner so much, but von Williams and Mahler, Mahler in particular. Yeah, yeah, just walking all day long, thinking. And I, I spent many summers hiking where most of what was going on in my head was composing. And now I try to swim 
And that's another place where, I mean, it's the stupidest thing in the world to go back and forth in a pool. I mean, that's yeah. like a really dumb thing to do. You don't end up going anyplace. For me, it's so freeing because it's that feeling of floating and motion and an ri- internal rhythm, and it just lets the mind go. And So, you know, I've tried it once or twice, and it's a, always a disaster where you think, I'm going to keep a pad of paper by my bedside, and if I have a real amazing dream, I'm going to wake up and write it down. So I've done it a couple of times, and I wake up in the morning again, and I look, and I've written absolute gibberish. I, mean, <laughs> not, I don't even know if they're letters. <laughs> so while you're biking or swimming or hiking or whatnot, and the, and the tunes or the ideas are going through your head, how do you retain them and then write them down? Or do you just let them happen and go back and it sort of sits there and then it gets m- more concrete? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is some people say, oh, you really write quickly. But what I keep telling, especially my students, is you're not composing when you're sitting in front of your keyboard or with a piece of paper and pencil. You're always composing. So the actual writing it down may be quick, but till you get there is an ongoing process. So I would say that ideas gestate all the time. I mean, while we're having a conversation, I can be hearing stuff in the back of my head. Not that I'm not fully engaged in this interesting conversation, but, you know, it's, it's sort of, I mean, in a way it can be a torment. I mean, my wife is a painter. And I can see we're talking sometimes and I'm watching her eyes and I know that she's listening and she's participating. She's seeing something and she's working while we're doing that. And that's kind of what it's like as an as a creative artist. You're always you're always it. You don't go to work. Yeah. You don't switch it off either. Never. It's, it's with you always. Yeah. And as you say, for some people who are close to you, it can be it's not a torment, but it can be are you really listening to me? Of course I'm really listening yeah. to you, but I'm also doing this at the same time. Yeah. It must have been what Mozart was like because I forget who was the, t- the, the wonderful article around one of the anniversaries of his life or his death, and they said, you know, if you add up all the music that he actually completed in the time in which he was living and writing it, there's barely enough time in the day for him to have actually written the stuff down, the, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. amount of music that came out of him. And so he too, like, like you and like any other composer, is, uh, the music's always there. It just uh, just yeah, has to find that. Yeah, but he was a genius. Mind. I mean, yeah, yeah. okay, I mean, that, like, that was singular. But but when but, it comes to when it comes to ideas, so um, let's let's speed ahead to what would you say is one of your first? Um, and I hate to use the word, but first significant instrumental works you still acknowledge. You like hearing that it's being performed. What's a piece that's uh, sort of a standout from the beginning of your career that is still? Yeah, I'm proud of that. Back, back in that last century. Back in that last century. <laughs> yeah, your your uh, early period, as it were. <laughs> you know, I haven't really thought about this, but I think that the first piano piece I wrote was a kind of breakthrough for me because I played the piano, but not well. And at that point, I had sort of stopped practicing. Like at a certain point, I had to make decisions. Like, where do I put my time? And because I didn't work as a practicing musician. I didn't want to be a music teacher or anything. I had a job as an artistic director or program director of cultural center institutions. And those take up a lot of time. So the idea of still keeping up my chops, badly playing the clarinet and mediocrely playing the piano and writing music became impossible. There are not enough hours in the day. So I stopped playing. So I now use and abuse the piano as a tool. But when I wrote this first piano piece, and I think it was in 1991, I wrote a piece that was harder than I could play, and I knew that it was a real piano piece. And and that piece has been performed a lot by a lot of pianists over the years and recorded a few times. And so I have a kind of soft spot for that piece. It was also a piece that was inspired by my love of hiking in nature. Um, I wrote it as an homage to my favorite hike in Switzerland, um, and it kind of crosses through the different landscapes and terrains in, an, in, in its musical energy. Um, so Trift Music is an important piece, but probably the two pieces that have stayed close to me are two pieces that came out of places that I lived, and issues that I cared a lot about. 
So I lived in Ghana, as I mentioned, for over a year. And I went to Ghana with a commission from an ensemble in Connecticut to write a piece for narrator. And the narrator is an opera director, Mark Lemos, and trio about AIDS for a benefit concert they were doing the following year. And I knew that it was a spoken word text, not sung. And I didn't really know much more about it that other than that it was going to be like a half-hour piece. And I went to Ghana with this project. And I went to the library at the U.S. Embassy thinking I'll get some poetry books and, you know, figure out what kinds of texts to set. And most of the poetry there, most of the literature in the embassy was Amer- African-American literature because we were in Africa. And it made perfect sense. So I immersed myself in a lot of the Harlem Renaissance poets and writers. Um, I also, and this is odd, but I started reading from the Bible, um, finding bits of material that were not God-oriented, which didn't resonate for me, but were about human connection and understanding life and death. And I started building a piece of little fragments And then while I was there, I met these two radical feminist American medical missionaries. And they came to our town. They showed up at the music conservatory and said, we heard there are two white ladies from America here. Um, You must be one of them. I said, hi, who are you? I'm Sister Margaret. Oh, I guess I better invite you back to our house for dinner. You're a traveler. Never expected this to happen. Became dear friends with these two nuns and their work was they had built a hospital in a rural village where most of the people were dying from AIDS. And they said, you must come. And I had shared with them some of the poetry that I had selected, including a Neruda poem, which took almost a year to get permission to use, that I was starting to write this piece. And they said, you must come and read this to our patients. So we arranged a trip. There were two Fulbrighters and two Peace Corps kid, uh, students in an unair-conditioned car, and we drove across Ghana to their village. And I met with the nuns, in, stayed in the convent, and we went and visited one of their favorite patients, two actually, who were both dying, and spent the day with them. And that night in the convent, I had a dream. And I dreamed that this piece was going to get born by my weaving this story together. So I started writing what I call diary entries, and I told the story, I fictionalized it, of a radical feminist medical missionary and an AIDS patient in a village in Ghana. And I wrote this piece, And Trouble Came, an African AIDS diary. And for about 10 years, it was done a lot, particularly on World AIDS Day. And to this day, every all the earnings I have on the piece, I send to um, the Medical Mission Sisters. I'm so grateful to that experience. And in fact, the piece doesn't get done as much now. I think AIDS is, and how we talk about it and how it's in our consciousness has shifted. But for that 10, 15-year period, it, it really was an important piece for me. And I, I like that it came from a deep place it came from truth and that it was used not just as art but as pedagogy in a way. You, I'm sure, have composed pieces that we would call abstract, meaning that they, they are in and of themselves music. But I, I sense a thread throughout your career, um, even with As One and Some Light Emerges and uh, so much of your work, that social and political issues drive you as an artist as well and that you are, as it were, composer it may be too grandiose to say, but composer as activist or activist as composer, it's important to you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a funny thing. Like, when do you take on that nomenclature? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not politically engaged in, in a way to change the government, although I should be now. Um, We all should be. (laughs) But, um, that's my music is my language. You know, this is how I express. And I'm a citizen and I care about the world I live in. So things that trouble me become 
what I'm writing music about, even if the piece is abstract. And, and this leads to my second piece, which is the Vukovar Trio, which I wrote in 1999. I had been living in Eastern Europe as the director of um, A Utopian Vision, the European Mozart Academy, which was founded by um, Alain Coblens, who wanted to um, try to help after the dissolution of the Soviet Union to avoid the brain drain of musical talent from the East to the West. So he appealed to George Soros and the Open Society and to the European Union to fund this experiment in Eastern Europe that would bring Eastern and Western high-level post-secondary, you know, postgraduate music students, young professionals together under full scholarship to live together for a year, make music together, and then concertize and give tours. And I was the director. And one of the... So there were 45 approximately young musicians living in this palace in Poland, um, which had been taken over by the Communist Party, and they built these, um, you know, cinder block concrete dorm buildings. So there was room for us to rehearse in the palace, and everybody, the students all lived in the, the, the ugly buildings. Um, and there was nothing there. There were fields, a church, and a um, general store, and that was it in the town. And we were pretty much making music all day long. 45 students from 26 countries speaking 13 languages living together. You can imagine what the parties were like. Uh, <laughs> Just the variety of alcohol available. <laughs> egg, that egg, you got it. Um, so one of the things that we did was we went on tour through many countries in Eastern Europe, and we went to Croatia. And we needed to get visas, and there were two times the trip was postponed because it was still very violent. Even though the war officially had ended three years earlier, there were still rumblings and there was a lot of dis... just a lot of concern. So the State Department wouldn't let us go. But we finally were able to go to Vukovar, which was to Croatia. It was the Sarajevo of Croatia. And we went in under um, UN Human Rights Watch protection to give this concert in the bombed-out Serb Cultural Center. And it was just an incredibly moving, powerful day. It was the first live concert this community had heard in two and a half or three years. And they were concerned that there would be fighting if the Serbs and the... the... So there's a lot of tension that entire day. And that night, they said, you know what? It's better to not go through the town square. Let's go across the footbridge over the river, one musician at a time with a UN patrol to get us into the Serb Cultural Center. And as we crossed the river at dusk, my guy pointed his flashlight. He said, three years ago, this river was red with blood. And that stayed with me. Like, it wasn't that we were just having an adventure and we weren't just giving a concert to poor people. There was still blood on everyone's hands. And I had to write a piece. And nobody asked me to write this piece. And so it's absolutely a programmatic piece, but it's a totally abstract. It's a piano trio. I needed to write a piano trio. I was living in Eastern Europe. I was surrounded by the music of Penderecki and Shostakovich and Ludoslavsky and Goretsky. And it was like I was in that world. So I wanted to write this piano trio. Um, I dedicated it to the victims of ethnic cleansing as an homage to Shostakovich, who de dedicated the quartet to the victims of fascism and war. And um, that piece has been performed by many trios in many countries over the last 15 whatever years since it was born. And that's a piece that really always hits me. And I've used that piece. I've been invited to give talks about musical responses to war or artists as activists because of that piece. Um, and then the most recent work has been about environmental activism, which has been a constant thread from that first piano piece, which was a celebration of the beauty of nature, to a number of pieces which are like, whoa, we are messing this world up, starting with my percussion concerto, uh, Terra Terribilis, but the most recent and profound, which leads to as one, was 
um, my string quartet, Rising Tide, which was commissioned by the Fry Street Quartet, who had an unusual proposition. They were approached by a physicist who's a climate change specialist who was very tired of giving lectures to rooms full of, of scientists about climate change, at the end of which there'd be a Q&A and a scientist would raise his hand and say, Dr. Davies, you said that the melt rate is 0.06429, and my research shows that it's 0.02467. And he said, that's not the point. People need to feel what they know. Music lets people do that. And he went to the Fry Street Quartet and said, I have a crazy thought. Will you play music at my next scientific lecture? Because it will help these scientists stop being scientists and let them be humans. And then they'll understand and they'll know, they'll, they'll feel what they know, and then they can change. And out of that was born this project that required its own music. So the first time they played Beethoven and Janacek, they realized they needed to commission a piece, and they had heard that I was kind of an activist. So they sought me out. They said, and the other piece of it is we want projections because putting up the scientific data. Now, this is a lecture, mind you. So there's charts and, and graphs. Has to then morph into imagery, and so then there will be photographs. But then it has to get more abstract as music is more abstract, and we need paintings. Do you know a painter? I said, well... My wife actually is a painter who paints abstractly from nature and is kind of an activist in that realm, and she's also a gardener. And So they said, well, let's audition her work. So this was a project that was really born out of shared passion and mutual respect across the disciplines. So Dr. Davies, Rob, and the Fry Street Quartet, and Rebecca and I, and a photojournalist from Canada named Garth Lenz, who flies over the world shooting from helicopters and planes down onto toxic sites, became the core of this project, which is now touring for five or six years. And it was the Fry Street Quartet. The work with them was so profoundly honest, moving, committed, passionate. They were hired to do as one and helped us develop the piece. And yet... It is another, as it were, um, bow in your quiver because you have done a great deal of work about issues and things that are important to um, our continuing existence, our lives as political citizens in the broadest sense of the word of politics. But as one is the story of a person. Mm -hmm. um, and um, activism can be an, in, a, in search of a cause but it can also be in search of genuine, simple, one-on-one -on -one human understanding. How did As One come into your life? So As One, I mean, the answer to that very quickly is yes, but the personal is political mm. and vice versa. Fair enough. Um, so As One, first of all, I'm not an opera person. Um, it's your first opera, right? It's my first opera. Right. I haven't seen many of the great operas. I was not immersed in the world of opera. I had not written very many songs. Never thought I was going to write an opera. Um, but it, as one kind of was born out of my political interests and curiosities, but it became very personal. Um, Rebecca, my wife, and I got married in Canada. We couldn't do it in the U.S. And we were following the U.S. state-by-state -state votes. And there was... And, you know, the same arguments were being drawn each time. And I was like, okay, so are they going to vote or are they not going to vote? Like, how many states will it take until this gets done at the federal level? That was kind of the way I was following this. Like, okay, okay, good. We can check this state off. We're moving forward. There was a beautiful New Yorker. No, it wasn't a New Yorker. It was a New York Times back of the magazine article many years ago. I forget the writer now. But he said, and this is before marriage equality, that he and his then brand new husband were going to get married in every state of the union as it became possible mm -hmm. just to say they'd done it. Yep. I, I actually think when I first met Kim Reed, who is, of course, very central to As One, that was one of the things that she and her wife were thinking of doing mm -hmm. was going as a, a same-sex couple and her as a filmmaker 
to, to do that. Document in every state to, of the union. But she ended up going in other directions, mm-hmm. making another film right now about dark money. But so one morning, 6 a.m., open up the New York Times, drinking a cup of coffee, New Jersey's going to vote. And I thought, okay, well, New Jersey's probably going to end up on the right side. But I glanced through this article, and I was like, it was different. The article was a story about a heterosexual married couple in suburban New Jersey with two teenage kids, and the husband was in the process of transitioning. And the point of the article was that if same-sex marriage equality did not pass in New Jersey, forget about the federal, this couple loved each other as core human beings, soul to soul. They were going to stay together. They would no longer be married. They would lose all the rights and protections and privileges that they had had for 20 years. And I went, wow, that's like opera. Like, what do you give up to be yourself? And then I said, wow. And the husband, as he transitioned and became the woman she really was, was finding more of herself and her joy in life. But her wife wasn't a lesbian. And she had to re-identify with her partner in a new way. Wow, what does that, I said, I just looked at Rebecca, I said, I don't know, there's something about this story. This is the stuff of opera. It's who are you at your core? What does society do to you when you go on a transformation, which we all do? What are the repercussions, good and bad? How do you come out of the cocoon of butterfly? And what happens along the way? And it just stuck with me. So that kind of like was there. I had just done a project with Sasha Cook and Kelly Markgraf recently in New York. I was the artistic director of Symphony Space. And I had produced a festival uh, called Wall to Wall, Behind the Wall, Music from the Soviet Era. And in preparation for that, I had a fellowship to go to St. Petersburg, Russia, to seek out Soviet-era music that was available there that we would not know in this country. And among the things that I brought back were jazz charts, which you'd think, well, everybody does jazz, but jazz was decadent Western music. There was a huge underground jazz scene. So I brought back those charts. I was in the National Music Library, and I was at the conservatory, and people were pointing me to people. So I I knew there was going to be a jazz component uh, on the festival. I found a collection of propaganda songs in support of the government that was um, with words in Yiddish that was published in Moscow in 1938. Wow. Yeah, and I was like, wow. Like, think about what it was like to be a Jew then as Hitler was coming to power in Germany and where was Russia in all of this and what Stalin and Lenin and like, whoa. So I had a collection of those. And then I gave a lecture or master class at the conservatory, the Rimsky-Korsakov Conservatory of Music, and the music librarian came out afterwards and said, come, come to my library. Let me see if there's something that you would like. And I, I was asked, well, what, what are you hoping to find? I said, well, I know this is ridiculous, but if there was some unknown score by Shostakovich or Prokofiev, that would be phenomenal. I have just the thing for you. This librarian goes into the back and comes out with this tattered cardboard box, opens it up, and pulls out an original Shostakovich manuscript. And gives it to me. I said, don't you want me to put gloves on? It was yellowy, faded. The ink had turned to violet. And I said, what is this? It was a collection of opera arias and folk songs that he had arranged for one or two voices, violin and cello, to be sung as entertainment for the troops. Wow. And it hadn't yet been, it had just been published in a book, but it hadn't been um distributed. And I was holding the original manuscript. I mean, he was a god. So it was like it was trem- tre- tremors all around. I said, may I get a photocopy? They said, no, no, no. It's just being published as part of the collection of everything of his. It's just not available. But I can show you, I can tell you where to get this book. So I went and I bought two copies and I brought it back. And, you know, it was Carmen in Russian, but, and a bizarre combination. It was you know, we had Bob Hope. They had Shostakovich doing opera aria arrangements. 
Um, and Vladimir Ashkenazi's father touring around the countryside on a piano with no legs. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just it, amazing it, story. Right. It's incredible. Yeah. So when I came back to New York, I knew that that was going to be a highlight. Not that it was important music as music, but it was an interesting triviality in a way. And it was a first in the States. And I was told, you should contact Sasha Cook. She's got excellent Russian. Her mother's Russian. Her father's a Russian scholar. So I wrote to her and said, I'm going to send you this music. If you don't do it, send it back to me. But I'd love you to come and participate, you know, in this bizarre little festival. And she wrote back and said, there are duets in the back of the book. My husband and I hardly ever get to sing together. Could we choose to do a few of those? I was like, great. And they came, and I fell in love with them as human beings and as artists. And standing backstage, I went, I want them to be in my opera. It was like one of those, like the bicycle moment aha of my moment. childhood, aha <laughs> moment. I said, in fact, I want them to be my opera. And my original concept of the husband and wife and the kids and the community, like that I was floating for a long time already, went out the window. And I just looked at them, and I said, I have this really weird concept. I want to write an opera. It's about a trans person finding truth. And I want you to be that person. And since I don't want any other characters in it, I only want a string quartet. It's got to be the Fry Street Quartet. Are you game? And they said, yeah, that sounds cool if it ever happens. And that was it. Like, then I knew. And I went to the, I, that night, I wrote to the Fries and I said, hey, guys, I have this bizarre concept. If it ever happens, will you do it? And they said, sure. So we had a cast, and I had a concept, but I didn't have an opera commission, and I didn't have a libretto. It took a while. I found Kim. Um, Rebecca saw that I was really focused on this, and she kept finding me books and films. And one night I come home. She said, we have a date night. We're going to watch this film called Prodigal Sons. It was Kim's film about her own journey, going back to her 20th high school reunion as Kim, where she had been the valedictorian of the class and the star quarterback of the football team. She went back with her wife, Claire, and filmed her reunion with her family and with her friends. And at the end, it was like, I have to find this person. So I wrote to the film distributor, arranged a meeting with Kim. She was on board. We immediately knew then that this bizarre opera project was going to have a film component. And we started figuring out, well, what's the story? And we tossed out a bunch of ideas. She didn't want to do an autobiography. Um, and then I met Mark Campbell. We were sitting on a grants panel at Opera America, and he's such a renowned librettist, and he's so smart and so funny. And at the break, I said, I have this project that's kind of, I don't know, could you give me some advice? I told him about it. He said, oh, my God, I want to do this. I said, well, if you and Kim click, I think we have a creative team. So I invited them over for dinner, and the rest is history. Impresario as composer. <laughs> I think it drives them crazy sometimes. <laughs> but I see, you know, I see this beautiful thread starting with uh, you as a child, not only as a creative spirit, but you love making connections. Oh, yeah. It's It seems to be one of those things about which you are incredibly passionate and because you are broad-minded enough and because you put no boundaries on your creativity, you're not going to say, I'm, you know, I'm going to write 12 piano sonatas before I'm 70. But whatever inspires you becomes the matter of the moment. Yeah. And it's a way of living a creative life that is fluid. And maybe for some people who are listening to this, who are thinking of going into the world of composing, maybe a little scary. Because everything you have talked about in our time together is a happy accident. Very little sounds as though it was planned with any sort of, in five years I'm going to do this, and in ten years I'm going to do that. It's been happy accidents of the best sort. You know, I, I love that you say that, because actually I never had a plan. All I knew was that, and, and I think you're right, I, I needed to write music. I like thinking broadly, and I do things with passion, and it's very much about people. Um, and actually don't think that there are a lot of accidents. I think things are kind of meant to be. So in terms of things are meant to be, when I went to Poland to decide if I was going to take that position, they invited me over for a week as a guest artist first so I could sort of scope it out. 
And I gave a presentation about And Trouble Came, an African AIDS diary. And that night at dinner with all the vodkas of all the different cultures, I'm sitting, and I don't really like vodka very much. I'm a wine drinker. But I'm sitting with all these young musicians, and this young Japanese flute player comes up to me. She hadn't said a word all week long. She was very quiet, beautiful musician. Her name was Sachio Hayashi. She comes up and starts asking me a million questions. I said, Sachio, why are you so animated about this piece? I mean, it doesn't have a flute in it, you know? She said, I have a friend from Africa. Now, Africa's a continent, you know? I said, oh, really? I said, Sachio, where are you from? She said, Japan. I said, yeah, I figured that out, but where'd you go to school? The Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. I said, I know your friend. Your friend is Margaret Adoa Ferguson. She was my student in Ghana. And I helped get her to the Royal Northern College. And Margaret, this is in the days of faxes, would send faxes saying, it's not easy here. They don't really like me. I'm so different from everybody. But there's one flutist down the hall who's become my friend, Satya. That's when I decided to take the job. And I negotiated with the director that I would accept the job. There was a slot open for a vocalist. I said, I will accept the job if you allow Margaret to come as a student for the spring semester. And so she and Satya were reunited in Poland. You are all about making connections. And these things are happy accidents. We could spend hours spending time together. It's such a joy to have the chance to get to know you a little bit better and to share with those of our friends who listen to these podcasts about your journey. We always, when we have these uh, chances to speak to our creative friends, ask a group of questions at the end. Some of them are a little bit silly, but they are sort of a level set. So here we go. Uh, What did you have for breakfast today? I went to the Maplewood. Oh, Um, lucky you. It's it's my new home. I I like it because it has big tables and I can spread out my score. I was editing a a final scene. I could have the score on my laptop. Did you get any cream cheese on it? (laughs) No cream cheese. I had a multigrain toast and a fruit salad with a cup of black coffee and a glass of water. Uh, What books or magazines are you reading at the moment? At this very moment, I'm not reading a book or a magazine because I'm finishing the last edits on Today It Rains, my new collaboration with Mark and Kim, and pretty much if I'm not doing something that I'm expected to be doing, I'm... I'm You're fixed. being diligent. I'm being very diligent. <laughs> um, but I'm, I actually realized, because the score is done now, I made the last corrections, that I'm going to go to the bookstore that I walked past coming over here today, and I'm going to buy a book so I can actually read a book on the plane going home, and I'm not sure what I'm going to find. Any television programs that you watch? Rachel Maddow. (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) That's plenty. Um, We all have cell phones, um, and they all have apps. Is there any particular app on your phone that you use either the most often or you find useful in this 21st century? I don't really use apps other than Uber when I'm away and I need to get someplace. Then Uber's a good app. <laughs> that's that's my app. I, I try to not live in my phone. Uh, I think you've already answered the question of a favorite Cincinnati restaurant or a tradition. And you haven't been here for very long, but uh, Maplewood uh, on um, Ray Street gets your vote. It's just been a good place to spend time while I've been here. There's the little place on the corner that uh, I don't remember the name, the Spanish um, tapas bar. That's nice. I, I've been here before with Mark and Kim as well. When we workshop, some light emerges. So it kind of... Some of it comes back. Comes back. Um, and the area around the music hall looks like it has a lot of nice places to oh, hang yeah. out. Did you receive one particular piece of career advice at any point in your growing up and growing into your craft that you consider still valuable today? Someone mm-hmm. give you a tip that you thought, oh... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it wasn't as a composer f- for me at, in my role as a composer, but it was for me in my role as an artistic director or presenter. Um, I was at the 92nd Street Y. It was my first real job. I was the director of the lecture and film programs, and I'm pretty s- short, um, and I had to go out and introduce the speak 
speakers every night. So, you know, Jimmy Carter was our guest speaker. I actually introduced the board president who introduced President Carter because, you know, hierarchy Pecking things. order, yeah. But right. I used to introduce every single program, and they had to build a little step for me because I was so short that I couldn't be seen over the top of the podium. And when John Kenneth Galbraith, who was, I think, six foot six, was my guest, he didn't know what to do when I finished introducing him. And he had to, like, get that step out of the way because then he would have been seven foot tall. Anyway, my boss said to me the very first day when I was given the tour of backstage and the dressing rooms and everything, said, my most important tip to you, aside from making excellent work, and doing it with honesty and conviction is you have to be nice to everybody who works in the theater. If you don't respect the tech guy and the usher and the janitor, you're going to fail. And I have always held that very much to be true. And when I was the artistic director at Symphony Space in New York, we would produce these festivals like the Soviet era music festival. And they were across the disciplines. I always wanted the literature program, the film program, the children's education program. Everybody should contribute some programming. We'd build something thematic. And what I decided to do as a way to stimulate that discussion, even though I kind of knew what I wanted to do, I didn't want it to be me. I wanted it to be us, so there'd be institutional buy-in. We'd open the bar up at 4 o'clock on a Friday, like twice a year, timed with when we had to do program planning. <laughs> and I would invite the entire staff, including, and I always got yelled at because I said, the security guard has to come too. We're all going to be here. And I'm going to say, these are a few ideas I'm thinking about. What are you guys caring about? And it was great because some of the best ideas were not the programming staff ideas. Right. They came from the box office assistant and the booking guy who just had to make sure the scheduling chart was good, who weren't theater people. They're citizens, and they care, and they worked in this space together. And So it's about that inclusivity. Good ideas can come from anywhere. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Many, um, but I would say that the one time my knees have ever buckled, ever, was when I greeted Chick Corea. I was like, I grew up listening to that music. His piano improvisations, his duets with Gary Burden, his trio music. I just, whoa. And I remember when I, he came to Symphony Space, we were honoring him, and I walked up to greet him, and literally my knees buckled, and I kind of fell for I said, I said, excuse me, this has never happened before. And he just gave me a big hug. What do you do to deal with stress? I fail. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, last but not least, um, you've talked about so many people, uh, both in and out of music, who have been, in one way or another, a mentor to you. Do you want to take a moment to remember one in particular, not the most important one, but just one person who's touched your life and made a difference as a uh. professional? Oh, my God. That's such a hard question. There were just so many, so many people that you learn from who challenge you. I mean, that same boss at the 92nd Street Y really taught me about sort of the honesty and integrity of believing what you're doing and doing it to the best of your ability and it's funny because, I mean, I haven't seen him in a really long time, but about five years ago, I just wrote to him and I said, you know, I haven't seen you in like 25 years, but I just need to thank you. Um, one week, I had worked 84 hours. It was a really bad week. There was a NEH grant proposal due. There was a summer festive, community festival that the Y was partnering on. I was the staff person that was associated with that. And I had four events. So I was there from eight in the morning till you know what that's like, oh, till sure. 1130 at night. And there was a donor dinner. And on Sunday afternoon, I just wrote a note saying, John, I worked 84 hours this week. I'm really tired. And he wrote back. And I was like nervous because like I've never challenged a boss and I've never asked for a raise, like none of that stuff. I got a note back from him on Monday morning saying, anybody who counts the numbers of hours they work may not, must not really be dedicated to their job. And of course he was wrong, 
But he was right on a certain level. And I went in and talked to him. And I said, I was just that frustrated because I was that tired. But you're right, because if you're going to do this kind of work, you've got to put everything into it. Now, as you get older, you get smarter about how to balance and manage that stress and exhaustion and all of that. Um, and, of course, I was captive. I was the junior staff person, so I had to work 84 hours a week. But he taught me about that kind of integrity. You know, respect everybody that you work with. Respect all ideas. Always strive for the best. And don't, don't slouch. Laura, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>